Hello and welcome to SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I'm the recruiting manager here at the firm and a producer of this podcast, along with Devin Benjamin, our podcast content manager. I'm pleased to introduce today's hosts, Scott Fortier and Talik Watson. Scott joined Isaacson Miller in 2016. As chief people officer, he guides and manages programs and policies that impact our staff and advance the firm's organizational values and business success. Scott also serves on the firm's management committee. Prior to IM, Scott acted as human resources manager at NutriClick, a technology-driven health products company, and as onboarding manager at Rapid7, a high-growth technology security company. Additionally, Scott was the founding artistic director of the Washington, D.C.-based Catalyst Theater Company. Talik joined Isaacson Miller as an associate in 2016 and became the firm's equity, diversity, and inclusion manager in 2019. Talik also serves on the firm's management committee. Prior to joining the firm, Talik held a number of fellowships, consultancies, and internships while in graduate school, which ranged from energy management to environmental sustainability and socially responsible investing. The organizations he served included the Environmental Defense Fund, Climate Corps, and UN Women. Talik is a member of the New York Bar and earlier in his career practiced corporate law. He also served as an editor of the Law Journal at the Howard University School of Law. Our guest today is Robin Steinberg. Over a 35-year career as a public defender, Robin represented thousands of low-income people in over-police neighborhoods and, in response, founded three high-impact organizations, the Bronx Defenders, the Bronx Freedom Fund, and Still She Rises. In 2018, Robin founded the Bail Project, an unprecedented national effort to combat mass incarceration by transforming the pretrial system in the U.S., Robin is a frequent commentator on criminal justice issues and has contributed opinion pieces to the New York Times, The Marshall Project, and USA Today. Her publications have appeared in leading law and policy journals, and she has contributed book chapters to How Can You Represent Those People and Decarcerating America. Thank you for joining us today, Robin, and with that, I'll turn it over to Talik. Thank you, Rhett, and hello, Robin. Uh, Thank you again for, for joining us today. And I'll go ahead and dive into uh, to the questions. First uh, is, how did you start the Bail Project? So I was a public defender um, for about 35 years. Most of my career was in the South Bronx uh, in New York, where I ran an organization called the Bronx Defenders. And, you know, as a public defender, I was deeply committed to fighting for each and every one of my clients um, as as best I could, no matter what they were charged with, no matter what the obstacles were, as were my fellow public defenders um, in the South Bronx with me. And, you know, at some point, what I realized was no matter how hard we fought, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how well-trained we were and how brilliant we might have been as lawyers and public defenders and advocates – Sometimes our, the, what was going to happen to our client and the criminal legal system all boiled down to whether they could pay their bail at the beginning of their case or not, which really means it all boiled down to money. Um, and it was that recognition. Um, you know, if you think about the fact that when you're charged with a crime but not yet convicted, judges and the systems across this country set cash bail on you. That means it's an amount of money you have to pay to be free to fight your case alongside your lawyer in your own community with your family. Um, and that obviously gives you a huge advantage 
Um, number one, you can work with your lawyer. Number two, you can keep your job and your kids and your home. Um, number three, you can make decisions about what to do with your case based on evidence and law and facts and really thinking it through rather than desperation to get out of a cold, dark, terrifying jail cell. And that's what cash bail does. It held our clients in. So when I saw that happening over and over again, a client who I didn't want them to plead guilty, but they didn't have enough money to pay their cash bail. So the only way to go home was to plead guilty, even if they didn't do it. I was just enraged by that. Um, so actually my husband and I, um, David and I started something called the Bronx Freedom Fund, uh, in 2005 and we began bailing people out and really wanted to look at like what happens when you bail somebody out? Um, what are the results? Will people come back to court if the money being used to bail them out is money that's been given, um, through philanthropy and not somebody's own money, right? So the cash bail system was all grounded on the idea that it was money that provided an incentive for somebody to come back to court. So we began using philanthropic dollars to pay people's bail. Um, and, the reason you can do that is a long-winded answer to your question, but the reason you can do that is bail money comes back at the end of your criminal case, assuming you make all your court dates. So we knew if we could create a system where we bailed people out and people came back to court, that we would get the money back into the fund and we could continue to bail more and more people out. So we ran that fund for about 10 years in the Bronx called the Bronx Freedom Fund. Um, and it was that proof of concept, it was that experience um, that led me to actually launch the bail project in 2018. It was to take that experience of running a revolving community bail fund for 10 years and see if we could scale it across the country. Um, and that is the bail project, right? We're 20 in 24 different cities across the country, uh, bailing people out day in and day out and trying to really move systemic reform forward, uh, in addition to, um, intervening and allowing people to be free while they're fighting their cases in the system. Thank you. And and we ask, uh, over the years, what are you most proud of in the work that you've done um, with the Bail Project? Yeah, well, it has to be. And I think everybody on our team, we have almost 100 people on our staff now across the country. I think we would all say we're most proud of the fact that we were able to um, intervene and, and pay bail for 15,000 people across the country uh, who otherwise would have been locked in jail cells and um, and had to endure the, you know, all the negative consequences, physical, mental, and, and the consequences that happen to your life outside if you're locked in jail, like losing job, losing kids, school, immigration status. So we're really, I'm really, really proud of the fact that we were able to do that and that we were able to really get up and running in such a short amount of time to have that kind of impact um, and scale across the country as quickly have we, as we have uh, is something that we're really proud of. I personally am unbelievably proud of the local teams. So we hire people from local communities who run the work on the ground in their own communities and watching them do this work day in and day out, learning from them, hearing from them, being guided by them, and then really understanding um, that at the end of the day, you know, those teams are going to take the leadership in their own communities when the bail project is long gone um, is something I'm incredibly proud of is watching that leadership grow, um, watching people that started as bail disruptors become managers and then become operations managers and regional directors and watching that leadership just flourish um, is something that I'm also really proud of. Um, so I, I would say for three years, I'm pretty proud of the work we've been able to accomplish um, in that short amount of time and how many people we've been able to bail out and how much influence we've been able to have in systems who are moving away from cash bail and hopefully towards um, a pretrial justice system that's actually grounded in freedom. Um, with, you know, no more cash bail. 
Robin, what would you say have been some of the biggest obstacles um, uh, to the bail project success over the years? So, you know, the bail bond industry is obviously not thrilled to have us <laughs> in existence. Um, you know, the bail bond industry in this country is a multi-billion dollar industry that makes its money um, off the desperation of people who don't have enough cash to pay their bail. So they take a 10% fee from families to bail somebody out. Um, and we stand in complete opposition to that, right? We're a not-for-profit who doesn't take a penny from our clients or their families or ha charge any fee to anybody. We just use philanthropic dollars and donated dollars to bail people out and do this work. So we certainly have faced opposition from uh, the bail bond industry, from law enforcement sometimes, um, and then sometimes from, you know, judges who, you know, don't think that we should be intervening in, in the system and paying people's bail and would otherwise have people um, in jail. So, you know, there's been that opposition. That's been a, a challenge sometimes. Sometimes you're not sure where the opposition is coming from, but you feel it. You know, all of a sudden you'll be faced with a piece of legislation in a jurisdiction that's that seeks to shut you down. Um, or you'll get a judge who all of a sudden starts setting bail in amounts that are, you know, impossible for us to pay. So you see that kind of opposition, but mostly we've seen that the system operates in its own way and sets cash bail in the amount that it does. And we intervene after the system has already made those decisions. Um, and so, you know, we, we like to say that we intervene and just try to, you know, even out a two-tier system of justice. Um, that really has allowed people with money to get, get out and be free and people without money to remain in jail cells. That obviously has had a disproportionate impact on people of color and low-income communities across the country. Um, and so, you know, we don't see that much opposition in the day-in and day-out operations to what we're doing. That doesn't mean we always get complete cooperation, um, but, you know, the opposition is pretty much focused in the areas I said already. Thanks, Robin. Uh, now, Scott, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, and those are uh, amazing accomplishments. And of the 15,000 people that you've uh, helped, what is the percentage of people that come back and, and attend their court date? Yeah, so the that varies from place to place, right? So we have a um, very robust, you know, five-person data team here at The Bail Project, um, track all this information, and we're very much um, you know, aware of looking at what's happening and how we can do better and how we can improve. So those numbers vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Nationally, the number is our clients appear for court uh, for 90% of their court appearances, uh, which is a very high percentage. And um, we're really proud of that. The other thing we're seeing as we track the data is that depending on the jurisdiction you're in, cases are getting dismissed once we pay bail. So what we see is that um, in some jurisdictions, as high as 56% of cases have been dismissed once we intervene and pay bail. In some jurisdictions, that number is 20% of cases are being dismissed once we pay bail. But what it teaches you is that, you know, whatever that number is in a jurisdiction, there are substantial numbers of people being brought into our criminal legal system and ensnared in it who never belong there at all and whose cases aren't sustainable. And those cases get dismissed, but only when people are able to be out and free and fight their cases. Um, if they had been held in those jail cells, I promise you most people would have pled guilty eventually because it takes a very long time to get your trial or your hearing in most jurisdictions. And it's asking people to stay in a jail cell for months and sometimes years before they can get their day in court. Um, and so being able to pay bail, we see dismissals happening at, at high rates too. Wow. 
And you mentioned also the uh, influence you have in systems. Uh, are there any jurisdictions out there that have moved away from cash bail? Yeah, so there's lots of activity happening in uh, bail reform across the country and and hopefully in reforming our criminal legal system generally, as I think, um, you know, the uprisings of this spring and summer really sort of brought to a head how our criminal legal system has been used as a tool against communities of color um, and low-income communities for generations and the damage that it's done um, and the violence that it's caused and the trauma that it's created in communities. Um, so we see lots happening. Um, we see, you know, Illinois just passed statewide uh, bail reform legislation that eliminates cash bail. Um, it's yet to be signed by the governor, but it's expected that it will be signed. You saw California had a lot of activity around SB 10 and then the proposition that wound up on the ballot. Um, so we're all going to go back to the drawing board in California and try to create a better bill than SB 10 would have done. Um, you see some movement in Detroit. You see, you obviously saw uh, statewide bail reform move forward in New York, and we actually exited our site in New York. And so our original proof of concept, the Bronx Freedom Fund, we actually closed our doors happily when most forms of cash bail were eliminated. Um, and so you see a lot of activity around the country um, happening at different levels. Sometimes that reform is at the local level. Sometimes it's a, a new ordinance. Sometimes it's a judicial order. Sometimes it's statewide legislation. But our incredible policy team um, are really involved in every one of the sites that we're in, working with local elected officials, policymakers, other grassroots organizers, and not-for-profit organizations, working towards long-term systemic change and the elimination of cash bail. But there's a lot of movement. We're very optimistic. That's really great, uh, important work that you're all doing. So a, a lot of our listeners would like to know when they donate to the bail project, what are some of the things that the donation goes to? So if you donate online, meaning you go to our website and you donate online, what we commit to is that any money you donate online will go into our national revolving bail fund. And what that means is that your dollars will actually go to paying somebody's bail. So we use that money for a national fund that we then disperse money to the local jurisdictions we're in on an as-needed basis when they pay bail for people. So that's um, where the dollars go if you donate online. You can also donate um, not online and you can donate you know, in a different way or specify that you're willing to have your money be used for operational expenses, right? Everybody who works at the Bail Project is a full-time staff person with full benefits and um, and we care about that deeply. We care about, you know, holding up our staff and making sure that everybody's compensated for their work. Um, so the operational costs go to, um, you know, supporting that work and the work of the people on the ground who are doing this work in the local communities, as well as our central support hub uh, that I'm a part of here in Los Angeles that comprises of the our data team, our communications team, our training team, um, the work that we do to do evaluations, um, you know, dollars can be used to support all the operational costs of the organization. And that makes sense. Uh, we want to make sure those uh, people are taken care of as well, doing all this great work. Sometimes people want to donate money because they care about their own communities, and we're also able to do that. So we we have local fundraising efforts as well, and people will, you know, donate money and say, "Look, I'm I'm born and raised in Cleveland. I care about this community. I want to make sure that my dollars stay here." And we're able to make sure that that happens if people have those desires as well. Great. So during the summer uh, of 2020 and still today, it seems that people are really interested in finding ways to take action. Other than donating money, what are some other ways that people can assist the organization in the work that it does? 
So we've had, you know, incredible uh, response to our work and certainly um, the wind and the impetus that really this, this spring and summer brought about in terms of our country's trying to reckon with its history of racial injustice and and the piece that the bail project is trying to play in eradicating the bail system, which has been just one systemic form of, um, you know, racism and, and inequity. Um, so we see people sort of volunteering their skills, right? That's something we had somebody, uh, for example, who, you know, wrote to us and said, look, I'm, I'm retired, but I was a career proofreader. If you ever need somebody who could do proofreading for some of the documents and the policy documents that you put out there, I'd be happy to volunteer my services. So s- sometimes it's about the skills you have to offer. Um, I say to people all the time, if you really want to help this movement, um, you know, particularly around bail, but but just around criminal legal systems reform or dismantling, however you see that particular dynamic, you know, get yourself really educated, not just about the history of our criminal legal system and its relationship to slavery and mass incarceration, but get yourself educated about who your local elected officials are and hold them accountable. Um, you know, whether that's the local district attorney's election, whether that's the judges who are being elected, whether that's your local elected officials um, at a broader level, like demand to know what their positions are on criminal justice and ref- and reform efforts and hold them accountable to the promises that they make. Um, so get educated that way. Um, get proximate to the problem. I know people say that all the time, but if you don't, um, haven't really had the experience of being in the criminal legal system or having a loved one in the criminal legal system, go sit in a criminal courtroom for a day. Um, and they're open to the public. They are required to allow you in. I mean, obviously when the pandemic is over and, and you can do that safely, but, but go sit in a criminal courtroom and watch what is happening in your name. And I say in your name because the criminal legal system is operating, right, as a reflection of our values in America. It's operating as a reflection of who we are and how we treat our most disenfranchised or vulnerable populations. And when you sit there with that in mind and you see how the system operates in your name, you will be horrified. Um, and that will probably spur you to action. And whether that action is you volunteer for an organization like the Bail Project, you donate to an organization like the Bail Project, you just sit down with everybody you know, family, friends, colleagues, and have these conversations, that's how we're really going to make sure that change moves forward. Um, you know, when prosecutors get up and they say, I'm here for the people of the state of California, I'm here for the people of the state of Illinois, they are speaking in our names, each of our names. And so whether or not you or your family members have been impacted personally is, is kind of irrelevant because the system operates in all of our names. And you really have to take that in. And once you do, I think you, everybody will be motivated to want to change it because it is a horrifying, degrading, dehumanizing system that is, has perpetuated racial disparities and economic inequity for generations. I'd actually uh, be interested to hear about, you know, maybe some of the myths or misconceptions about bail or some of the common ones that you've heard um, over the year that you've had to uh, debunk in your work. So that's a great question. And the first thing that always surprises me is that people a lot of times don't realize that bail is set on people who have not yet been convicted of anything. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, this conversation I have all the time, which is, yes, we incarcerate people in America 
before they've been convicted of a crime. And we do that by setting unaffordable cash bail on them. And that's really hard for people to grapple with. Um, it's not what people understand it to be. They think bail has been set on people that are guilty of a crime. The other thing that I find surprising and, and is, is how little we can hold on to the fundamental of our criminal legal system, which is the presumption of innocence. The presumption of innocence should not depend on one's zip code, one's race, one's origin, or one's bank account. Um, the presumption of innocence is supposed to apply to everybody, right? And so we see over and over again, people sort of, I'll get even really thoughtful, smart journalists who will say, yeah, I get it. You're like, but what about the guy who's charged with X? And I always say, okay, that person is also presumed innocent and no evidence has been brought forth in a court of law to prove their guilt yet. So we are talking about the moment in the system before there's been any evidence, you know, brought forward or there's been a conviction that you're holding people in jail cells. So that's the other thing, as I say, is how little we really have have taken in and really take ownership over what we say about ourselves, which is we presume people innocent, that people have equal rights under the law and equal access to justice under the law. Um, and cash bail just turns that on its head. And I think it's one of the reasons it's hard for people to hold on to is it's so at odds with what we believe about ourselves, that we have equal justice under the law and that people are all entitled to the presumption of innocence until government can prove your guilt. And only after that happens, will they take your freedom um, from you, right? So um, that's been really interesting to see how little we as Americans really internalize those values. Um, and the other thing I, I think that I've seen is, you know, until we really begin to see ourselves um, in the eyes of people that are ensnared in the criminal legal system and see our children as the way we see our own children, you're going to constantly be grappling with um, reform moving forward and then reform moving backwards. Because the minute you see reform move forwards, what we're seeing across the country is, is the playbook, right? Reform moves forward, law enforcement coalesces, and they begin to pump out bad stories that are designed to scare people that say, like, if you let people out of jail who haven't yet been convicted of a crime, crime rates are going to go through the ceiling. Bad things are going to happen. The sky is going to fall. That's not what you see, in fact. Um, when you see statewide reform, what you actually see is more people being in their communities and thriving and their families being able to remain whole and intact. And you don't see an aggregate risk um, of crime rates going up or, or a risk to public safety. Um, and so we see across the country the playbook, right? Reform moves forward and then you see the bad stories on the front page of the New York Post or the bad stories on the front page of a local newspaper. Um, and that the only way you fight against that is to stay grounded in the actual data and the actual science and the actual things we know that are facts and not fall prey to the narrative of fear that has driven this country to become the number one incarcerator in the country, um, in, in the world. So I think, you know, those are some of the things that, that we confront and we see all across the country. It's remarkable how, um, how consistent the playbook is. <laughs> here comes the new law. Here comes the bad stories. Here, right, here come, like, and we just see it over and over again. And we're really trying to, in the places we're working, we're really trying to fortify people and strengthen people with the data that we have and the learnings we have to basically say all of that is the kind of fear mongering that got us to where we are today. And you cannot fall prey to it. You have to stay above it. Robin, why do you think more people aren't horrified about what's going on? I think that people, look, I think 
you know, quote unquote, crime is something that is deeply emotional. Um, it is something that, you know, can create like when we're afraid, when people are made to be afraid, we will justify some of the worst things we've ever done. Um, whether that is that we justify murdering people in the name of the state by imposing a death penalty, or we justify Guantanamo and torture, or we justify holding people in jail cells before they're convicted. You can get people to do really horrible things to each other if you scare them enough. Um, so I think that's one of the dynamics that goes on. And I think the other dynamic that goes on is, um, you know, people think it's not going to touch them. Um, and that's the other Right. And that's where you see, you know, the lack of understanding about how our criminal legal system has been a tool, right, that has been used to perpetuate, um, you know, systemic injustice and racism for a very long time. If you think about folks ensnared in the system as other, right, it is easier to look the other way. Um, and so, you know, I do think there are some things people need to be aware of, right? And I say this when I talk to people, if you think this doesn't impact you, you're wrong. Um, it does impact you in, in the ways I talked about, which is the system is operating in your name. But if you think you don't know people who've been impacted by the system, chances are you're wrong about that too. Um, there was a Pew study from last year that showed that one out of two families in America have had an immediate loved one booked into a jail. That's a lot of people. That is a real representation of the expansion of our criminal legal system, the over-policing um, that's been going on for the past few decades. Um, and you may think you don't know somebody who's been impacted, but you probably do. Um, and so, you know, I think that's part of it. Um, also, is people think it's not going to touch them. But I promise you, when it does... <laughs> that's the other thing. When it touches somebody you love, all of a sudden, all these concepts that seem so theoretical, the presumption of innocence that you were willing to abandon, you know, when you got scared or the fairness or unfairness of cash bail, all of a sudden, when it affects somebody that you know, that you love, you become the staunchest defenders of our rights and constitutional rights that are supposed to apply to everybody that you've ever seen right? Because all of a sudden you recognize, right, that the person you love is more than the worst thing they ever did or the worst thing they've ever charged with doing, um, that they are a whole human with strengths and weaknesses and flaws and, and incredible attributes, um, and that people really shouldn't be defined by that moment, um, that there's way more to everybody than that. And it, you're really reminded of that most personally when it affects somebody you love because you know them in their full humanity. Um, but it goes back to what I said before that, you know, the, the issue about what we do with our criminal legal system is not just a legal one. It's not just a political one. In my opinion, it is a deeply moral and spiritual one um, about who we are and how we respond and how we see others and how we deny people's full humanity when we demonize them or define them by a criminal charge rather than um, remind ourselves that we're all um, much more complex than that. And if we don't grapple with that and, and take a good hard look at ourselves and how we think about crime, how we define it, who we prosecute, who we ensnare in the system, why we think that one thing is, is a criminal conduct that needs to bring you into the criminal legal system, but something else is just a civil penalty, um, is almost always about class and race and power. And, you know, until we really reckon with that, we're going to continue to see um, reform efforts go forward and then move back and go forward and then move back. We have to change ourselves. Can you tell us um, how has the work of the Bell Project changed during the pandemic 
or has it changed at all? Have you been seeing maybe a decrease in the request for bail during this time? Sure. So when the pandemic hit um, and we all began to internalize what was happening, which I would say probably happened in March, um, you know, we knew every one of us at the Bell Project saw what was coming. It was like watching the tsunami coming and you had no way to get out. And the idea that the people that we are trying to support and serve and get out of jail cells were going to be standing in the wake of this pan- this fatal pandemic um, because they didn't have enough money to buy their freedom was a horrifying idea. Um, and so we just got busy really quickly and um, began to try to change our systems so that we could, and when I say our systems, I mean our internal systems, um, so that when we had to stay at home, we wanted to continue this work. So one of the things we did was we pivoted our work to remote work um, and worked with the local criminal legal systems to enable them to allow us to pay bails remotely. So, and I and I was delighted to say that the systems moved relatively quickly. These archaic systems that claim they can never change the way they do things managed to all of a sudden figure out a way to take bail money remotely by allowing us to do wire transfers, right? Rather than having our staff put themselves at risk and then put people in, in jails at risk by showing up in person so we could remain socially distant uh, but still bail people out by doing interviews um, remotely or over video, by paying bails um, you know, through wire transfers or other remote forms, um, still being able to support clients when they were, once they were out in the community. So we were able to sort of pivot and be flexible while protecting our staff as well and making sure that people could stay safe while we were still doing this work. And so I'm incredibly proud of the work that the teams have done to make sure we uh, you know, continued our work uninterrupted. Um, we have seen at the beginning of the pandemic jurisdictions decarcerating um, and, and, and systems uh, releasing large numbers of people. We unfortunately have seen those numbers ticking back up again. Um, and those initial stages of decarceration, people seem to be um, reversing that trend. And so we see jails and their populations growing again, which is, um, you know, tragic, horrifying, disappointing. Um, but, you know, we continue to do the work and continue to to show that you can let people, um, you know, allow in their communities while their cases are pending and they'll come back to court. So, you know, we also were involved in, um, with some other organizations, getting some personal protective equipment into the jails, particularly in Cook County, um, you know, for the potential clients we were serving, folks locked in jail and for staff. And so that was important to us as well. But certainly the pandemic just for us increased the urgency of our work um, and the real importance to get people out of jail cells where being held in a jail cell during a pandemic could literally become a death sentence. Your organization works with people from low income backgrounds. Many are black and brown. Would you say there is a political agenda to the bail project? So here's how we think about ourselves. We think about ourselves as doing both direct service work right? Which is, you know, intervening, paying bail, supporting clients when they're out, making sure they're getting court reminders, connecting them to community-based services that they may need, or just connecting them to some of the basic needs that they have that are going unmet. 
Um, and so that's the direct service work we do that we're incredibly proud of. But the direct service work is only one part of what we do. And I guess you could say the political agenda is, right, what we really want to do is eliminate cash bail. What we really want to do is create a fairer pretrial justice system. What we really want to do is restore freedom and justice to people of color and low-income communities across this country who have been denied it, both in the pretrial context and the larger criminal legal system. So the political piece of the work we do is both the activism that our teams do in their own communities around racial and social justice issues, but but it is also about moving systemic reform forward in the jurisdictions we're in. So our policy team works day in and day out to try to um, persuade um, local elected officials and lawmakers and policymakers to move away from cash bail and to recreate a pretrial justice system that is really founded on the things we care about, um, which is freedom and justice and equality. Um, and so in, to that extent, it is it is deeply political. And honestly, you know, we think about when you pay bail with the philanthropic dollars for somebody who wouldn't otherwise be able to pay their bail and go home to their family, it's an act of resistance. And in that way, it's political. It's an act of resistance to a system that would otherwise criminalize race and poverty. Um, it's an act of resistance to a system that has targeted particular communities um, to perpetuate the success of other communities for generations. Um, and so in that way, every time we pay a bail, we think it's an act of political resistance to a system that is um, really needs to change. So I'm not sure about this next question, but I'll throw it out there and see if if, if, if we can uh, grapple with it. Um, so as a follow-up, would the bail project be available to those involved in the insurrection at the Capitol, many of whom were white? So the bail project, you know, pays bail for any eligible client. Um, we do individualized assessments. So our bail disruptors go into jails or remotely during pan the pandemic, interview clients, try to assess whether there are supports in the community, whether there's ways to contact them and how we might be able to support them when they're out and then where appropriate pays bail. We don't pay bail for everybody. Um, and so, you know, I would like to think that our teams would evaluate each and every person that was referred to them. Um, you know, and make an assessment about whether or not we had a way to contact people, whether we had a way to support the client if they needed services. Um, and I think the, the question is a complicated one because you're asking me to assume that the person who was referred to us, we knew in fact that they were guilty of being part of an insurrection. I mean, do, do we want to be part of anything having to do with, um, you know, groups or organizations or individuals that are hate groups or were part of an insurrection or were part of a challenge or democracy? Of course not. Um, I think we would have to struggle long and hard in really thinking about, you know, when we would decide that we were the purveyors and, and deciders of facts and, and who's guilty and who's not and who was an observer and who wasn't. To be honest, the question's a little bit of a, of, a, of a myth because what we know about most of the folks that were at that insurrection is that they were quite well supported by people that have lots of access to resources. And the chances are they wouldn't be referred to our organization anyway. So um, I, I think it's not a problem we've had to confront, um, but we would certainly have a long, hard talk about how we dealt with that issue. So Robin, uh, how do you decide or how do you determine who you take on as a client? 
our bail disruptors do individualized interviews with each client that they are contemplating paying bail for. And what we're looking for are a couple of things. One is that we want to be able to assure ourselves that we have a way to contact the client. Um, and that could be a bunch of different ways. It could be a text message. It could be a family member. It could be somebody in the community they know. It could be you know their pastor that we could talk to. But we need a way to contact the client so they know when to come back to court um, because that's the only way our, the money that we pay for bail is going to come back into the revolving bail fund, which enables us to pay bail for somebody else's mom or dad or sister or friend or loved one in the future. So that's important to us, right? The other thing we look at is, um, do the client, does the client have needs that really need, uh, supportive services for? And so what we see is that in historically under-resourced communities, right, you don't see a wide network of supportive services that a client may need. And so if we, for example, interview a client who's in a mental health crisis and the community that he is going to return to doesn't have supportive services to support that client and provide the kind of services to the client that they might need, we may actually have to um, not pay the bail. Um, and that's really painful. I think that's the hardest decision our bail disruptors have to make uh, when they get to know clients is that sometimes somebody's needs are too great or the crisis they're in is unable to be supported by whatever services exist. It's a very powerful argument for, you know, taking money out of jails and patrol cars and handcuffs and putting it into community-based services that folks really need. Um, but when we can't find those services to support the client, sometimes we can't pay the bail. Now that said, a huge number of our clients, all they really need is the bail money to be paid. And they're just going to return home and go back to their jobs and their families. And they're going to go on with their lives until their case is over. And then we have clients who sometimes have moderate needs that we can connect them to services in the community that might support them, whether it's mental health services or housing or food insecurity or addiction services. We can connect clients to those services so they can um, stabilize themselves while their case is open and they're out in their community and, and the cases are pending. But sometimes there are clients whose needs are too great um, or the crisis is too severe and the services don't exist and we don't think we can really connect clients to the services that they need. And in those situations, um, our bail disruptors um, don't pay the bail. Um, and that's how we sort of think about the work that we're doing. The important thing about that is what we're also able to identify is what services are lacking in given communities that if they were there, people could be free and home and in their communities. Um, and in that way, we hope to be a resource to the jurisdictions we're in as we hope uh, we see more investment in communities. Um, we might become a really good resource for being able to identify where the gaps are in services for people, where the gaps are in terms of what people need. Um, and help advise the local jurisdictions we're working with about where they need to invest um, some resources. Robin, do you see your work changing uh, with uh, under the Biden administration? Um, you know, we don't really, except to the extent that, you know, President Biden and Vice President Harris can, you know, use the power of the bully pulpit that they have been elected to have um, to really talk seriously about criminal justice reform, talk seriously about systemic racism, 
talk seriously about bail reform and that that might be able to motivate local jurisdictions to move forward. They, of course, could create incentives for local jurisdictions. Um, at the federal level, right, there isn't anything they can do um, to force states to change the way they operate their criminal legal systems or their bail systems. But what they could do is they could create incentives for states to do that. For example, they could create grant programs that basically said to local jurisdictions, if you decarcerate your pretrial population by, you know, 50%, we will, you know, give you this grant money, right, to do that work. Um, that would create some incentives. But the but at the federal level, they can influence the federal criminal legal system, but not the local state jurisdictions. Um, criminal justice is wildly local. Um, and so it operates differently, not just in every city, but in every town. And that that is a really hard thing to do. But they can certainly raise the issue on the broader level um, and create incentives for states to decarcerate. And that's what I'm hoping that they're going to do. So, Robin, what, what's next for you? <laughs> um, what's next for me? Wow, I don't know. So I made a commitment to, you know, create the bail project, get it up and running, you know, create the infrastructure that it needs to be a really powerful organization. Um, you know, it's not my intention to be here forever. Um, I, I feel like there's real value in building something, um, helping it get up on its feet, you know, having a vision along with my incredible colleagues, every one of whom I value so much. Um, and then stepping aside and letting other people take the mantle of leadership. And that's certainly my intention here. When exactly that happens, I don't know, but um, I can imagine that happening in the not too distant future, that uh, the mantles of leadership should really be passed on to, um, you know, next generation of people who can move this work forward. You know, work in, in criminal justice and racial justice and social justice went on long before me and it's going to go on long after me. Um, I'm just one person and one participant. Um, and I really look forward to watching the work go forward sometime without me. And then I'll figure out whether I'm going to, you know, actually have that Pitbull Rescue organization or that Labradoodle Farm, who knows what I'll do. Um, but, but for now, I, I feel like um, this is where I am and, and this is what I'm dedicated to. And I'm looking forward to continuing to build leadership in the organization who can take the mantle from me at some point. Well, it's, it's amazing work that you do. And uh, we're, we're, we're glad you took the time uh, today to talk to us uh, about that. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And Rhett, uh, back to you. Yeah, thank you, Robin, for taking the time to join us. And thank you, Scott and Talik, for hosting. I'd also like to thank the listener for tuning in. We would love for you to subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch up on our old episodes, as well as be the first to hear new ones. And we'd also invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information or follow Isaacson Miller on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk.